and then we're going to lead into a bit of a lab time. I hope to encourage you tonight with, um, but I want to share about uh, Enoch Generation. Um, after I was uh, first saved in 1977 and began to read my Bible, I was saved at 10, and by the time I was 12, I felt called to ministry, but I just really loved my Bible, and I didn't have much discipline in my life, really. It was the grace of God. I just loved my Bible, and I, I started just clipping through the thing and reading my King James Bible. I was holding tight to it in my day-by-day with Billy Graham. It's, it's what I had in 1977, and um, I was reading through there, and there was a, a, a deep impact that happened to me about a unique character uh, there in the Scriptures, and very little is written about him. Enoch... Um, is, is the one that kind of caught my eye. I know David did great things, and I loved all these characters, and Solomon, and Noah, and, you know, amazing people, but Enoch caught my eye. And in your Bible, Enoch only has five verses that mention him, yet he's one of the most unique and significant characters, I personally believe, in all of Scripture because of what he stands for. And so the Lord has recently been drawing my heart back to this 40 year ago, that's what it is, about 40 years ago, that I uh, became born again and my heart and mind became drawn to Enoch. And I remember telling people, they'd ask me what my favorite Bible can I go, Enoch. And they was like, Enoch, okay. And trying to register that. And I'm like, and I wasn't trying to be unique and weird, even though I do that at times. Um, but I was really touched by uh, Enoch. And you'll see why here in a minute. I, I personally long to be part of and hope to see what I'm calling an Enoch generation. Those are my words, not a biblical deal, but I believe that Enoch stands for a generation, and and we'll get there. So where you first read about Enoch is in Genesis 5. So you've got the story of the creation in 1 and 2. You've got the fall in 3. In 4, you get the brothers having some trouble, and you see what's happening in a fallen race. And then 5 is what's called a genealogy. It's that those chapters you skip over really fast a lot of times. And so in it, we have this history that's built that's really important, actually, because it links us to God's, you know, past prophetic purposes and his lineage and things he says to future generations. But this chapter starts out like this. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he he named them um, uh, when they were created. So when Adam, verse 3, had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. I mean, that's amazing. To live a millennium, <laughs> that would be a long time, wouldn't it? But that's what's going on here pre the progressive, if you will, judgment of God upon sin and death. And as it's coming out in the race, we're going to move to 120 years that man will live. Then we'll eventually get to 70 that are promised 80 if strength. But right here, men are living for a long time. And you have this genealogy that has this similar kind of rhythm. Let me read in verse 6. You'll hear it again. Because Seth was the son. It says, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enish. Seth lived after he fathered Enish 807 years. He had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Seth were 912 years. And it just keeps piling down through the generations doing the same thing. This guy, who was the son of that guy, lived this long, had a baby. Then he lived and had lived this many more years, had a bunch more sons and daughters. I mean, the, the global population's exploding with these long-living parents. And then they died. Then they died. That's the similar themes that are happening through this. Well, I'm going to skip on down then to the seventh one in verse 21. In verse 21 of that same chapter, it says, When Enoch 
who had lived 65 years, he had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, he walked with God, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, which seems a bit shorter than the others. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I remember as a young man, a little man, reading that going, well, that's wild. That guy died, that guy died, that guy died. Six guys died, 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 died. And then all of a sudden, this guy goes only like a third of how long a lot of them are living. And suddenly, I mean, there's a unique statement. He walked with God, and then he was taken away. Well, it caught my young imagination. And I was stirred in faith to search out about this guy. So, basically, in the midst of the genealogy that is emphasizing birth, living, and children, and death... Is a radically unique character whose narrative is profoundly different than the rest of Adam's descendants. By the way, this has nothing to do with the sermon, and this is going to be a total waste of your time, but I just want to give you a biblical joke, okay? What you can say to people is this. It's a riddle. Who's the oldest man to ever live, yet he died before his father? What's the answer? It's Methuselah. Thank you. Pay attention. Methuselah. If you read on, Methuselah lives 969 years. He's the oldest man ever to live, yet he died before his father. How'd he do that? Well, his daddy never died. Ah, there you go. You're welcome. Nobody has to pay for that. That's all free. So, but I was stunned by this because here is this radical change, this transformation. The narrative's changed on a guy who walks with the Lord. So, there are three primary differences between Enoch and the rest of the guys here. Number one, all of them lived life while Enoch walked with God. That's the difference is made. There's a living of life, and by the way, after uh, Seth was born and he had a baby, there's a phrase they started to call upon God. So multiple of these guys were calling upon God at moments, but it's not the same thing of what Enoch was doing. He was walking with God perpetually during all that time. Number two, all of them died while Enoch was taken by God without dying. Hebrews 11 chapter uh, verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not taste death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, therefore, he was taken and he was commanded, he was commended, sorry, as having pleased God. That's the writer of Hebrews' commentary on what happened to Enoch. Enoch had believed God. By faith, he was caught up. So what we know is that he walked in a perpetual walk of faith with the Lord. And that faith had brought such pleasure to Yahweh's heart that we see an interruption of really the law over the Adamic humanity. I mean, the veil that's all over us is this thing of death. It's uh, what Isaiah will call a veil that will be rent one day. Jesus put a rip in it at his resurrection. The first fruits, a man rose up from the dead who would never die again as the first fruits of what's about to happen to all of us. But this is unique to him, to the other guys. Number three, he was a prophet proclaiming the words of God. Enoch is a prophetic guy, and we find this out from the Apostle Jude, who was a half-brother of Jesus that was saved later. Just before the book of Revelation, in verse 14, it says, It was also about these, these wicked people he'd been talking about, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that 
ungodly sinners have chosen to spoke against him. So Enoch, if you will, way back in Genesis 5, has a vision of the greatest historical event that will ever happen on planet Earth. What is it, everyone? It's the second coming of Jesus. Enoch is a prophet. He's walking with God, having other sons and daughters, moving and living by faith in the presence of God, and he's prophetically, he's getting visions um, which is quoted out of the book of Enoch, which is not in our scripture. I would encourage, if you would like to read that, read it. Know that it's not scripture, but this is a direct quote out of a book of Enoch that was a historical book. He saw tens of thousands of holy ones coming with the Lord and executing judgment upon the earth. Well, this is undoubtedly the second coming, the battle of Armageddon and all the dynamics of the book of Revelation. And so he's a prophet among all these men, which they were not. So the unique dynamics of of an Enoch generation are these. Enoch was a prophetic type of a coming generation that would be walking in the presence of God and prophesying the words of God, which is really the church. We teach on this all the time. Acts chapter 2, 17 and 18 give us really what the church's primary mission will be or identity is on the earth. We will be a people that are filled with the Holy Spirit, sons and daughters, I'll pour out the Spirit, and then they will do what, everybody? Prophesy. They will prophesy. That's why we love to clean off that word. It's a beautiful biblical word that's been abused, and we're sorry for that, but we don't throw the word out because it's been abused by people, okay? So we're trying to clean it up. We're to be a presence-filled, prophesying people for the glory of God. So the outstanding reality of Enoch's walk with God, though, was his faith. And we read about that in Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it's impossible, this man who walked by faith, it's impossible to please the Lord, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists or is and that he rewards those who seek him. This is in that Hebrews chapter 11, Hall of Fame chapter, and he lifts up the life of Enoch and says it was by faith he walked and he was caught up. And he says he was committed as one who pleased God. How did he please him? By being a man of faith. What the enemy is after in all of our lives, especially you ought to notice this, with the apostasy of even in church leaders and so many struggling with their faith, the enemy is after our faith. He's, he's trying to propagate unbelief manifesting through anxiety and depression and, and riches and fame and all that's going on. The enemy's trying to, be to, uh, to take our faith away. So 2 Corinthians 5, 7 is a verse that really typifies Enoch. For we walk by faith and not by sight. This was the dynamic of what was going on in Enoch's life. He's moving from being a man in a fallen race that's determining everything by how he feels, by what he touches, and what he sees. This is the curse of the Adam race, is that we're locked in on the natural realm as being the only reality that we have. But Enoch transcended that and got us a bit of a pre-picture of a new covenant people that would walk by faith and not by sight. In the midst of the generations of sight-bound men, Enoch arises to operate in a whole other set of spiritual faculties by faith. That's why we train here. We're going to do a lab time in a minute. We want to train you. We want you to know your Bible. Bible, Bible, Bible. We're Bible people. We want you to eat the word, pray the word, preach the word, say the word. But we also want you to know the presence, the personal presence of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit speaks to you and how you discern that and how you move and you walk by faith with the invisible realm 
in this visible world. So, this uh, reality is again brought out by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.18. We look not to the things that are seen, believers, look this, but to the things that are unseen. That's such great language. We look at the unseen. Well, how in the world do you do that? For the things that are seen are transient, they're going to pass away, but the things that are unseen are the eternal things. So what Paul's saying is, I want you all to have a priority for the unseen realm where the reality of the kingdom of God exists, and it's going to break through into the natural realm, but you've got to be set free from your addiction to this, and so I'm going to give you a value system. The stuff that's in the natural realm that's satiated with the Antichrist spirit and sin and the curse is dying as we sit here. There's so much death on the planet. This is passing away. It's transient. But I tell you, there's an eternal reality that is not passing away, that is a foundation forever, and it's really the things of the Lord in the spirit realm. So, summing up, in a general sense, Enoch stands as a type of the whole church that by believing or walking by faith has escaped death. So John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into the judgment, but has passed from death to life. Every believer, if they enter by faith into the gospel, really has begun to transcend death. It says about Lazarus in that time in in uh, John chapter 11, that even if a man believes in me, even if he dies, what does it say? Yet shall he live. We've got resurrection life even if our physiological body dies. But he's more than that. Enix, I believe, more than that in our Bibles. He is also, in a specific sense, standing for the seventh and last generation in the earth who will see the Lord's coming and be taken away. Does everybody understand There's been thousands of generations since we've been on the planet. There'll be one unique generation. The Bible talks about this generation more than any generation in your Bible. It's the the most unique generation. It's talked about in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the generation that will be on planet Earth when the Lord Jesus returns. What Enoch saw of the Lord coming with tens of thousands, to break in and release his judgments on that that's in rebellion is also the moment that he's going to resurrect the dead and he's going to raise up the believers that live in that day. So 1 Thessalonians 4.16, just to prove from my Bible, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. I love this passage. I'm living for this passage right here. This is why we do mission, by the way. (laughs) We want to engage Matthew 24.14. I want people to be saved, but I want the end of the world. I want 1 Thessalonians 4.16 to happen as soon as possible. Everybody okay? Here's Sam going off about the second coming again. I want Jesus. I love the living by faith is great. I cannot wait until I see by sight my king drive through, break out through the eastern sky and come and get his inheritance and break cancer off the planet and break human trafficking on the planet. We're gonna keep doing what we do, but I'm telling you, we want Jesus back on the planet. Amen, everybody? We want him as our inheritance. We want him to get his inheritance, and we've got glorious pictures. So that's all my setup to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. 
Because we could see this happen. It would be glorious. For the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of a command. That'll be a loud voice. It will give you chills. Can you imagine the, the cry of command coming out from the heavenly realms with the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. What does that sound like? I can't wait to hear it. And the dead in Christ will rise first. My daddy, my friend Tim Deaker, and my friend Roger, they're going to get up out of the grave. This, right in front of us, they're going to come up. Death will be broken over their lives as they meet my Lord in the air. <laughs> then we who are alive, second place, who are left will be caught up. Will be caught up, taken up, Enoch. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with him forever. And Paul's pastoral exhortation after this eschatological proclamation is this. Therefore encourage each other with these words. How do you endure this age and all the pain? Keep saying this to each other. Jesus is coming back. Dead people are going to come out of graves. They're not going to stay dead. I'm so glad about that. That's not normal. And we that are here are going to be caught up. So I know people that have been around me are going to just uh, roll their eyes when Sam does his phrase again. But I'm, ba- I'm, li- I'm living for, preaching for, praying for that I could be part of the generation that does not die but flies. I, I want to be here and see. I want to be that Enoch generation. It marked me 40 years ago. Why not now? Why not in this generation? Why not the scriptures to every people group fulfilled? The gospel, the kingdom, everybody. Why not praise and worship on every island, Isaiah 42? And then we see the Lord stir himself up and bring what we all want. We all want him. This is the desire of our hearts. Not to keep doing this over and over. We want him to break in and break through to bring his glory. Personally, though, and I know no one can be sure for sure, but personally, I believe that possibly the Enoch generation is up on the, is up on the earth right now. Not just generally, yes, the church, but maybe specifically. This generation, I believe, of Enoch generation will be the leaders in what we're calling the house of prayer cultural revolution that will and is manifesting the church to stimulate the Lord's coming. Don't I write long sentences? Who's going to lead? Who's going to lead? Who's going to be in the forefront of a house of prayer cultural revolution, which we've got to have? Oh, that the church would be known as a house of prayer instead of a house of planning. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen by a bunch of people griping. It's not even going to happen because we go to Coke Arena and get thousands of people to pray. It's got to be bigger than that. We need a wholesale, systemic, transformational move in the body of Christ where church staffs are known more for praying than planning. And I'm pro-planning, after you pray, and pray a lot, <laughs> that the church is having a dialogue with God, that's the kind of church he's coming back to. He's coming back to a church that's having a conversation with him. Not just a, sorry, I'm repeating these phrases. We want a kingdom dialogue, not a ministry monologue. The ministry monologue may be sincere and may accomplish some things, but I'm telling you, it's a kingdom dialogue that will transform cities and get us to where our hearts desire. So either way, this amazing biblical character of Enoch is there to, number one, inspire our hearts to a deeper faith walk with God that brings pleasure to his heart. How do we please God? It's this walk of faith. I'm 
everything. It's not just, I'm here to service. My sexuality is in faith. My money is in a realm of faith. My my parenting, my, my everything's faith. And I'm learning how to walk by faith as it satiates all that I walk in. Number two, it brings attention to the presence and prophetic filled life of a believer. That's what Enoch does. Enoch shows us its perpetual presence, practicing this presence, which is what I think a house of prayer is. It's us having that dialogue on a regular basis, and I think God's helping us that are prophetically speaking the word of God's scriptures and the inspired words that he's given us. Number three, Enoch inspires us about to proclaim the ultimate victory over death through all that our faith in uh, Jesus Christ. So, I believe that you live in a unique day. Um, I'm not making predictions or writing a book or predicting dates, but I would say this. It does not seem like Jesus is going to be mad at anybody that enters the heavenly realms that was trying to go for him coming back in their generation. I mean, can you picture that? Jesus is like, you know, you really wasted a lot of time going for that second coming deal. Does anybody think he's going to do that? He said, you wanted me. You wanted me. I love it that you wanted me. This is, it's his pleasure. Paul's going to write in 2 Timothy chapter 4, after he talks about Demas deserting him, a disciple, for the love of the world, he'll say, I'm going to get a crown of righteousness. It's laid up for me and also for everybody that longs for the appearing of the Lord. I'm telling you, I, one of my missions is to stir up a craving for the second coming of Christ. Not just because we want to go through the book of Revelation. I just, I don't mind the major last birth pains if I can get the baby. We, it's worth it to go through the last birth pains to get what our hearts desire, which is that we get our king ruling and reigning over everything. I believe that the Lord is stirring up an Enoch generation. I hope you'll join me in praying for that. And this will stir your hearts to faith that you might pray that Lord raise up a seventh generation. It was the seventh. It's always a number of fullness. The seventh from Adam was the one that bam was no more. I think the Lord's pointing and going, there's going to be a raptured generation. There's going to be a generation where I'm going to bring an end to all this, and I'll bring forth my full glory. Thank you in Jesus' name, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Enoch. Thank you for the testimony. Five verses that say so much. I pray, and I know that the best teaching for everybody around this subject will be after this meeting while they're alone with you, because Holy Spirit, you're the greatest teacher. I pray everybody be able to meditate on this, go deep in their walk of faith, and would be able to uh, draw close to you. Lord, I pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray for the nations to be saved. Everyone to hear the gospel. We want a billion, two billion people swept in the kingdom. But Lord, speed the day. Speed the day that you break the curse off the planet. You get what's rightfully yours, and we get what we long for in our hearts. Lord, we bless you and honor you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.